Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome to episode 4, The Life of Romulus, part B. In part A, Plutarch took us through a wide array of possible origin stories of how Rome was founded and by whom. We actually had some technical difficulties recording this the first time around. However, those have been since fixed, and we appreciate your patience. Thank you. Plutarch detailed a range of stories from wandering tribes from the east selling Rome, to refugees fleeing Troy to resettle, to a pair of ambitious and jealous brother kings of Alba, Amulius and Numitor, whose bickering would directly lead to the birth and rise of Romulus and Remus, and what Plutarch describes as the most agreed-upon origin story at the time. Amulius and Numitor, for those who remember, both ascended to the throne, making a deal that Amulius would acquire all the treasure brought from Troy, while Numitor would take control of the bankrupt kingdom. But it was not long before Amulius used his wealth to push Numitor aside, setting the stage for Numitor's vestal daughter to break her vows and conceive two brothers, Remus and Romulus, which threatened Amulius so much he had his cowherd dispose of the baby kings, or so he thought. But of course, the servant Fastulus doesn't actually kill the babies, as it seems these servants never do in the ancient stories. Fastulus leaves Romulus and Remus on the banks of the river, and they're kept alive by the sacred she-wolf and woodpecker of Mars, correct? Yeah, no, that's right. And as you'll recall, the twin brothers grew up to be impressive young men, and found themselves dragged into the power struggle between the Alban kings Numitor and Amulius. So we left off with Remus captured and confined in Alba, taken prisoner by Numitor with Amulius' permission, and Romulus heading to Numitor at full speed to plead for the release of his brother Remus, with full knowledge of their past origins, thanks to Fastulius. Now to back it up slightly, Plutarch provides some context to the changing relationship between Numitor and Remus, which will prove crucial in the coming commentary. For it was Numitor's cowherds who had jumped Remus and brought him to, Numi- uh, to Numitor at Alba Long, and in turn it was Numitor who resisted immediate gratification through punishment until he got the okay from his dear brother King Amulius. Now we should note that Numitor was not the king and was actually living under Amulius's watchful eye. So Numitor, after seeing Remus undeterred by his current position and maintained the disposition of a statesman, began to grow found, uh, fond of Remus and, as Plutarch describes, asked Remus one simple question. Who are you? Now, this question would change everything. Now, Plutarch writes that Remus responded um, as such. I will hide nothing from you, for you seem to be of a more princely temper than Amulius, and that you give a hearing and examine before you punish, while he condemns before, he, before the cause is heard. For only then, we, for we are twins, thought ourselves the sons of Fastulus and Laurentia, the king's servants. But since we have been accused and aspersed with calamities and brought in peril of our lives here before you, we hear great things of ourselves, the truth of which my present danger is likely to bring to the test. Our birth is said to have been secret, our fostering and nurture in our infancy still more strange, by birds and beasts to whom we were cast out, we were fed by the milk of a wolf and the morsels of a woodpecker as we lay in a little troth by the side of the river. So obviously Remus at least understood his own origin story, but felt if he couldn't get himself out of this, then maybe the origins were just myths after all. Makes me think of Caesar's famous line, the die is cast. So getting back to the story, Romulus with his birthing troth in hand, headed to Alba at the beckoning of his adopted father, Fastulus, to save his brother Remus from whatever fate may be awaiting him. So Chris, 
Where exactly is Alba located in relation to the early settlement of Rome? That's a great question. Alba was roughly about 12 miles southeast of where Romulus and Remus would eventually found Rome. Around the modern area of Castle Gandolfo is located in Italy today. So just a short distance from Rome, really. Now, one of the king's guards, immediately upon spying the trove Romulus was carrying, knew exactly who he was and why he was moving with such haste across the courtyards of Alba Longa. Amulus got wind of the foreign guests within his walls, presumably by one of his guards, and summoned Fastulus to account. Fastulus bravely maintained his composure and did not attempt to flee the city, and went to Amulius and confessed that indeed the two babies he was ordered to drown in the Tiber some two decades prior were still alive, and that they were raised as shepherds far from Alba. Amulius quickly dispatched, as Plutarch describes, an honest friend of Numitor, to ascertain what tidings were to come to him in light of this most fascinating news of the survival of his only threat to his throne. This honest friend of Numitor, after sensing Remus was not interested in being received by Numitor any longer, may have given Remus some words of encouragement about the fact Romulus had arrived with a few hundred men and he should himself jump to action. I wonder if Amulius, after hearing the truth from Fastulus, regretted handing the young lad over to Numitor. As we mentioned in Part A, we were unsure whether or not Amulius was aware of the survival of his two and only real rivals, and perhaps Plutarch's account of an amazed Amulius settles that question once and for all. Amulius was once again facing a threat from the boys, who were now men, which he had thought were laid to rest on the banks of the Tiber. Remus was encouraged by the news of his brother's arrival, and having garnered some trust with Numitor, he began to incite a revolt with the citizenry. Meanwhile, Romulus attacked the city from beyond the walls with his two companies of a hundred men each. Amulius was now between a rock and a hard place and eventually was betrayed by those within his inner circle and put to death. Now, this account of Amulius' death was given by who Plutarch thought were the earliest historians to write on Rome's origin, this of course being Fabius and Diocles, and are suspect due to facts, a few facts which do not fully jive. A few facts which do not necessarily jive with the narrative, in my opinion, would be how did Romulus escape after entering the city and beginning his attack? Where were Amulius' own forces? And how was Remus able to move around so freely to spark a rebellion within the walls? Remember, Romulus was spotted very quickly when he entered the city, and these same guards would have been patrolling the city uh, during the time of the revolt. However, Plutarch politely reminds us that these accounts would not, quote, wholly be disbelieved if men would remember that a poet fortune sometimes shows herself and consider that the Roman power would hardly have reached to such a high pitch without a divinely ordered origin, attended with great and extraordinary circumstances. So with the death of Amulius and Romulus and Remus living up to those great things Remus mentioned about themselves, left Alba Long in the hands of their grandfather Numitor for at least the duration of his life. It must have been a sweet day for Numitor. He finally got his kingdom back and has the respect of at least one of his grandchildren. Yes, you have a victory here for Numitor and a long-delayed family reunification. It seems like a great happy ending right here, so I wonder why Romulus and Remus chose to leave Alba and head back to the Seven Hills of Rome and found their own city. No, that's a very good question. And perhaps they were simply driven by ambition or fate or the god Mars to found their own city. Um, you know, we, we won't ever know the answer to that, but we do know that it happened. 
Well, this is a romantic version of the reasons the two brothers left the city and left Numitor in power. The more likely explanation, Plutarch says, was due to the hordes of slaves and fugitives, which were now congregating in Albalong. Now, traditionally, Albalong did not accept or integrate slaves or foreigners into their society. So the prudent thing to avoid a renewed civil war was to take this manpower and to build a new community where their lives were first doomed, then saved, and eventually flourished on the banks of the now famous River Tiber. So with a large labor force and two companies of rough men as their protection, Romulus and Remus embarked on their last adventure together, which would seal the fate of one of them, while the other would go on to build Roman society, which would endure for millennia to come. So upon arriving at the banks of the Tiber, and presumably close to where their birthing trove was enshrined, Romulus and Remus both presented competing locations for where the new, their new city would be built. Romulus chose a spot called Roma Quadrata, or the Square of Rome, while Remus laid out a more defensible spot on the Aventine Mount, which Remus named Remonium and Regnarium in Plutarch's time. So being extraordinarily stubborn apparently was the name of the game, with both brothers not budging from their choice of the new city. So as custom in these times, it was decided that a contest would be determined by a divination from a flight of birds. Divination meaning to be inspired by a god is the attempt to gain insight into a question or situation by way of an occultic standardized process or ritual. Thank you, Wikipedia. So as I understand Plutarch, in this case, divination meant whoever saw the most vultures during the divination ritual would of course win the day and their plot of land for Rome would be chosen. Pretty cool, eh, Ryan? Next time we have to edit the podcast, let's give this a whirl to see whose turn it is. I don't know. I mean... Say what you will about how we make decisions in our modern representative democracies, but it has to be better than settling matters through a bird-watching competition. Oh, I agree. Definitely. It was reported that Remus um, saw six vultures and that his accounting was unembellished, while Ramos claimed to see twice the amount of Remus and declared himself winner and immediately began digging foundations. However, Remus had suspicion that Ramos had faked his account of vultures, and in fact, he had won the day. This, of course, put Remus on a collision course with history, for which his history would forever be truncated. Before we move on to the anticipated confrontation between the two, I want to back up a bit and provide some context to this whole divination from a flight of birds for a moment. These sort of animal rituals were not uncommon in ancient Rome and Greece. However, the fascination the Romans had with birds is quite interesting, and the reasons this ritual used vultures is equally as interesting. For to the Romans, the vulture, as accounted by Herodotus, Ponticus, mentioned that Hercules was always happy when a vulture appeared to him upon any action. The reasoning behind the vulture's popularity of Rome stems from their characteristics of being different from other birds in the sense they are the least hurtful of any bird, as they only feed on carcasses and nothing living, nor do they engage in cannibalistic behavior of any kind, whether it be a dead vulture or an alive vulture. Romans admired, this, uh, Romans admired this survival strategy of sustainability and discipline, so seeing the most vultures could have been a sort of moral sign that the gods approve of this person, almost a purity of the being. It's very interesting and so different from how we see vultures today. But you know, with environmental issues rightfully becoming top of mind these days, maybe it's time we start to take the Roman view on vultures. 100%. They are one of nature's recyclers. Anyway... To lie about the number of vultures seen, uh, seen might seem silly to us today, but for the ancient Romans, the bird was a sign of divinity and to be taken very seriously. 
Likely, Remus was less upset about the lie for this particular reason, and likely was incensed he had been so easily tricked out of his city placement. What seems out of character for Remus, based on his collected cool during his captivity in Alba Long, legend has it that Remus headed to the construction site and began to knock over the foundation walls, accusing Romulus of cheating him. In the ensuing scuffle, both Remus and Fastilus, their adopted father, perished, leaving Romulus an orphan and only child. But with his rivals vanquished, he was free to build Rome as he saw fit. Interestingly enough, Romulus would instill in all future Romans for centuries to come the value of embracing foreigners, slaves, servants, criminals, as Roman citizens doing their part to make Rome great. There is no better example of Romulus' soft spot for the disadvantaged than a structure he ordered built during the construction of Rome's original city center. This was the temple of the god Asleius. The purpose of the temple of the god Asleius was to receive all those seeking help and shelter delivering none back to where they came from, such as servants to masters, debtors to creditors, nor the murderers to the hands of the magistrate, saying it was a privileged place and maintained the place by an order order of the Holy Oracle. This sounds familiar. This is like the many stories of Greeks seeking refuge in temples as no one would dare defile them with blood. And of course, in the Middle Ages, you have stories of people seeking sanctuary in churches. Yeah, no, you're, ac- you're, you're absolutely correct. So if Remus out of the way and Numitor back on his throne some 12 miles away, Amulius dead, and his band of vagabonds protected by the temple of the god Asilius, Romulus could now turn his full attention to the building of the city and building the basics of Roman society and culture, which would outlive Plutarch as Rome went from a kingship to a republic and finally to a world empire, ruled by princeps or emperors with far more power than most leaders have ever had before and maybe ever since. Now I should note, Romulus decided to bury Remus on the Mount of Remonia, Remus's desired spot for Rome. Some may view this as an insult, but I think Romulus honored his fallen brother and put his own mind at peace for the adventures which lay ahead. Now, for the Romans, religious rituals and rites were prerequisites for many activities in Roman life, and city building, building was apparently was no different. Before Romulus set out to build the shining bright city on the hill, he sent for men from Tuscany who would ensure the coming construction projects followed sacred usages and the written rules and all the ceremonies and rites required prior and during construction. First, they dug a circular trench in which the court of assembly would stand and solemnly threw in the first fruits of all things good as custom dictated. And lastly, every man took some earth and tossed it into the ditch. First fruits is a common ritual in Western religions. And at that time, represented the fruits of their labor from harvest and other fruits of their labor which were allowed under the ceremony rules. Perhaps this ritual is similar to the breaking of champagne bottles on the hull of a newly minted ocean vessel, or ribbon-cutting ceremonies for large public projects. So this ditch they dug, they called Mundus, as they called heavens, served as the center of the city, and now properly ordained through religious ceremonial rites, would expand out around Mundus very quickly and would grow and grow as the centuries passed. Romulus next took a plow and attached it to a bull and a cow and plowed a large and deep trench around the city center, with workers falling behind, massaging the uprooted soil inwards towards the city. This formed the foundation for Rome's first wall system, which was ordained holy except for the spot left for the entrance and side gates, for entranceways could never be holy due to unclean men who would walk through. Maybe sort of like walking under a ladder today is considered a bad omen, but to superstitious Romans, rituals, rituals were godly, and godliness was not something to trifle with 
or even to tempt fate, as that could bring disaster in some form. So it is widely accepted Rome was founded or construction began on April 21st. And that day the Romans keep holy, calling it their country's birthday. This is the day that Romulus completed the Mundus, performed the ceremonies and plowed the borders of the city which would eventually house a large wall. Rome was founded and grew quickly, starting with 1,000 homes and expanded every day. Romulus was the sole king, and the Roman adventure was officially off to the races. Now Romulus, having settled his flock, moved to ensure the flock was well protected by enlisting all men of fighting age to bear arms into several companies of men. Each company consisted of 3,000 footmen and 300 horses. These companies were called, wait for it, drum roll, legions, the coolest ancient military unit ever. Well, I think so. <laughs> it is a pretty cool unit. Of course, I'm quite partial to the phalanx, but we'll have to save that legion versus phalanx debate for another time. It's interesting, though, that the Romans date the history of the legions all the way back to the founding of the city. I did not realize the history of the Roman legions stretched all the way back to the very beginning. Yes, it was you know, part of Rome from the start, and anyone not serving the legions, Romulus called the people. It's very interesting that Romulus felt it wise to separate the military from everyone else. Romulus next began to break down the people into various societal roles. He started by choosing 100 of the most prominent men in the young Rome and styled them as patricians, and their assembly, the Senate. It really looks like a plan is forming, doesn't it? The pieces are starting to fall into place. It's amazing that these institutions lasted as long as they did. Yes, this is one of the main things that still impresses me about the Romans. I think it's best we spend a little time talking about the patricians, because this group of powerful men play a prominent role in the Roman kingship and republic, shaping Rome's destiny for centuries to follow. Plutarch tells us that some thought that the patricians were those few who could provide proof of having lawful children and could clearly give an account of whom their own father was. Many of the vagabonds who followed Romulus and poured into Rome, seeking her protection, probably didn't even know where their families were, and hence, the original Romans were those preceding the founding of Rome and became stewards for all other Romans born later, and not from their lineage. This group would rule for a long time until other institutions arose to compete in later centuries. Others believe that the patricians came from the word patronage, their word for protection of inferiors, the origin they attributed to a man called Patron, who came to Italy with another man called Evander in another story that sort of resembles kind of a Robin Hood tale. Perhaps the most probable origin Plutarch describes as follows. But perhaps the most probable judgment might be that Romulus, esteeming in the duty of the chiefest and wealthiest men with a fatherly care and concern to look after the meaner and also encouraging the commonality not to dread or be aggrieved at the honors of their superiors, but to love and respect them and to think and call them their fathers might from hence give them the name of patricians for at this very time all foreigners give senators the style of lords but the romans making use of a more honorable and less invidious name called them patris conscripte either way a tiny fraction of the population who were wealthy landowners were given the keys to the growing castle by this more imposing title patris conscripte Romulus distinguished the Senate from the general populace, setting up the Roman client-patron system which would endure for centuries and perhaps help bridge the equity gap between the rich and the rest of the people. Not bloody likely, but I'm sure the patricians felt a little bit better about themselves. <laughs> well, at least the intentions were good, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. So with the political system and basic economic system in place, 
Ramas turns his eyes to future growth, and the famous Sabine women would play a leading role in Ramas' plan, though this would be forced upon them. Plutarch writes that in the fourth month since Rome had been built, Ramas turned his eyes to the beautiful Sabine women to help perpetuate his new people and provide the city with desperately, desperately needed women, for the ratio would be one only favorable to any poor woman who was living in Rome at the time. Rome needed to grow organically, and Ramas knew Rome couldn't grow forever through immigration alone. One account has Ramas kidnapping 30 virgins for which the curate or fraternities were named. Now, there were rumors that the Romans kidnapped actually 527 Sabine women and others 683 women, with the Romans justifying these kidnappings because the women were yet to be wed and were up for grabs. But Plutarch reckons that you know, the motives may have been a little more older fashioned than that, and the kidnappings and rape of the Sabine women were for alliance building and ultimately bringing two peoples together. Do we spy another piece of the puzzle falling in place? Perhaps. So regardless of whether it was 30 or 500 or 600 Sabine women kidnapped and raped, or for what reason, growth or alliance, the events truly was a brutal affair. The Sabines who lived in small unfortified villages were believed to be a colony of the Lacamodians, or Spartans, and appears to have been a people of good conscience, and remarkably, first used words to try and reason with Romans for a return of their young women. However, with our understanding of the Roman modus behind the brutal kidnappings, it should come as no surprise that Romans rejected the Sabine plea out of hand, and instead offered an alliance with Rome. Clearly, the Sabines are not going to stand for this, though. Exactly. And it appears Romans' refusal to bargain with the Sabines apparently was the last straw for some of the Sabines. Plutarch says that while some Sabines mold uh, you know, over Romans' offer, King Akron of the Sinonenses, I'm sure I did not uh, pronounce that properly. A man described as high-spirited and a good warrior, yet jealous of Romulus and his growing power, gathered a large, formidable army and marched on Romulus. Romulus, having recently built an army of legions, gathered them together and prepared to battle the incoming Sabine king. The battle would most certainly have been a bloody affair, but once spears were pointed in hostility, Romulus and the Sabine king agreed to a duel. Romulus made a vow to Jupiter that if he was victorious, he would honor him with the king's armor, and proceeded to defeat and kill the Sabine king with ease. Then after cutting the head from the snake, he ordered his legions to attack, routing the leader of the Sabine army, then conquering their town and raising it to the ground. Romulus then asked all the inhabitants to move to Rome, set aside the bitter war, and become good Roman citizens. Not bad for a day's work, eh, Ryan? Geez, it's a brutal but, I guess, effective way of ensuring the continued population growth of a new city. Yes, you know, this practice Romans was establishing, first at Alba Long, and now with the Sabines of not killing or enslaving the populace of conquered peoples, and instead indoctrinating them into Roman society with full Roman citizenship and rights, I personally believe is one of the single most potent reasons for the vast success Rome would see in the next thousand years. Now, Plutarch writes... And indeed, there was nothing did more advance the greatness of Rome than that she did always unite and incorporate those whom she conquered into herself. So out of this victory, and Romulus' attempt to keep his vow to Jupiter, another symbol of Roman greatness and power rose, the triumph. Plutarch writes of the occasion and articulating it much better than I ever could wrote. Romulus, that he might perform his vow in the most acceptable manner to Jupiter and withal make the pomp of it delightful to the eye of the city, 
cut down a tall oak, which he saw growing in the camp, which he trimmed to the shape of a trophy, and fastened on it Akron's whole suit of armor, disposed in proper form. Then he himself, girding his clothes about him, crowning his head with a laurel garland, his hair gracefully flowing, carried the trophy, resting erect upon his right shoulder, and so marched on, singing songs of triumph, and his whole army following after, the citizens all receiving him with acclamations of joy and wonder. The procession of this day was the origin and model of all after triumphs. You would think that the Sabines, after losing their young single women, their fiercest warriors, and their cities, with thousands being forced into Roman citizenry, would seriously consider the offer of an alliance. However, sometimes when the die is cast, hindsight is impossible, and the Sabines now felt the thirst for revenge which would grow with each loss. After the overthrow of King Akron, the furious Sabines mustered another army from the villages of Fidino, Crustemuririum, and Antema, and marched in Romulus and were quickly rooted. The villages were seized, land divided, and of course, the populace transpa- transplanted back to Rome. The Sabines next doubled down, and putting their final fate in the hands of a man named Tatius, formed another army and marched with quick foot to Rome. Now this last standoff between the two peoples would not be as easily won as the prior engagements, for Romulus would be betrayed by the daughter of one of his captains named Tarpeius. Now Tarpeius's daughter, Tarpeia, having spied the Sabines' wealth dangling on their wrists, neck, and clothing, made a deal with the Sabine leader Tatius that she would let the Sabine army into the fort protecting Rome in exchange for all their jewels hanging from their persons. Now in a bizarre and most likely fiction, Tatius, the Sabine captain, agreeing to the contract with the jewel-blinded Tarpeia, upon entering the fort, obliged Tarpeia of her request, and all the Sabines who entered would smother Tarpeia to death with a barrage of gold jewels, bracelets, and shields until she was buried alive and crushed under the weight of it all. Yeah, it makes for quite the image, the traitor being crushed to death beneath all the shields and treasure. But there must have been an easier way to kill Tarpeia, am I right? Oh, I agree, 100%. But I guess, uh, and that's kind of why, you know, many historians believe this is more of a, you know, fictionalized version of what what actually happened. Um, in any event, um, Tatius obviously would have been pleased to have, you know, gained entry through treachery, but must have realized that treachery could go both ways. And perhaps the real story was she was executed upon the Sabine breach of Rome. So it appears fortunes had changed for the Sabines. They had a foothold in the city and would on numerous occasions in smaller battles force Romans to retreat. Now, in the fierce battle, Romulus himself was wounded. However, once he was healed, he re-energized his forces and pushed the Sabines into a final confrontation. Now, before steel and flesh could clash, the Sabine women, who were now married to Roman men and bore their children, raced between the two armies, denouncing the ever-escalating hostilities, telling the Sabine army, many of whom would have been their fathers, brothers, uncles, and nephews, that they did nothing to avenge their kidnapping and rapes originally, but now come to tear them away from their new husbands and, most importantly, their children. The Sabine women did bring their husbands and children to meet their old families and to implore both sides. We are one people now, regardless how we got here. With Sabine women having a foot in each society through love of each, they forced both armies to lay down their arms, forming an alliance between the peoples, suggesting both the Sabines and Romans live in Rome. Named for Romulus, and bestowed upon the Sabines equal rights the, Rom- the Romans had. The first peace treaty in the history of Rome was completed, with Romulus and Tatius ruling together, each over their own tribes, 
coordinating through the Senate. When you get right down to it, the Sabine women are in many ways the real heroines of Rome's founding. It seems quite likely that without these women, the nascent city of Rome would have failed through either lack of population or through bitter war between the Romans and the Sabines. Yeah, that's a very good point. These women prevented the city from dwindling away and then put a stop to an escalating war that might have been the end of Rome before it even really got started. So with Rome doubling in size, 100 Sabines were elected senators, presumably using the same merits Romans had for his original senatorial picks, and the legion swelled to 6,000 foot and 600 horse. The people were then divided into three tribes, one for Romans called the Ramanices, the second after Tatius called the Tatinices, and lastly, the Luz series, where the sanctuary for all men stood, as described earlier when Rome was first being constructed and religious rites were being realized. The two Senate classes would meet first privately, then would convene the entire chamber. So if Rome now doubled in size, ample women for future organic growth, a large army and the Sabine women gluing both people together until time healed old wounds and a new generation of Romans could emerge, Romulus has accomplished a lot in his short time as king. He would now have to focus on melding the two cultures and people equitably. This would be no easy job, and tensions would once again rear its ugly head. The Sabines would adopt the Roman calendar, while Romulus, having seen the effectiveness of the Sabine long shields, would incorporate them uniformly into the combined forces and allow both armies to keep shield insignia as they pleased, while introducing new ones such as the Matronalia, instituted in honor for the Sabine women who stopped what likely would have been a bloody and disastrous battle. Over the next five years, Romulus and Tatius were careful to not to antagonize one another too much, but an incident in the fifth year of the new order would see tensions flare and Romulus once again dispatching a threat to Rome and himself as he saw it. Plutarch describes an incident where some of Tatius's friends and kinsmen met some ambassadors coming from Laurentium on the road and killed them when they refused to hand over their gold pieces sent Romulus into a rage, and for the first time since the peace treaty, open hostilities once again was the order of the day between the duo kings. Romulus demanded the perpetrator's heads, and when Tatius refused, slaughtered Tatius while they were sacrificing together in Lavinium. Like Remus before him, Romulus buried Tatius on the Aventine Mount. Miraculously, the Sabines did not mount a rebellion and continued living in peace, respecting the new culture both had shed blood to forge. This event also marked the alliance of the ancient Latins recognizing Romulus as the sole ruler of a very powerful city-state and seeking peace before they find themselves as the next Sabines. Soon after Romulus' further consolidation of power, a plague struck, killing many and spreading to Laurentium. The Romans felt this was the gods voicing their displeasure with the fact that murderers of the ambassadors were, were not punished. So to appease the gods, the murderers were executed, and Plutarch says the plague subsided. There was some displeasure within the Sabine ranks as the, the Camertines, feeling the plague had weakened Rome, then invaded Rome, pillaged her, but was eventually slaughtered by Romulus, and as before, her city and inhabitants were brought under the Roman yoke. Times were getting more desperate for neighboring nations as Rome gained strength daily, while neighbors shrinked away or voluntarily joined Rome to avoid the eventual fate every rebellion led against Rome met. However, some saw the success Tatius had in Sabine's last push against the Romans and perhaps hoped to replicate an equitable peace. Or maybe, just being the times, felt necessary to make war. Either way, a series of nations would rebel against Rome, 
all of which were unceremoniously put to the dustbin of history with one of Romulus's last battles ever fought. They say he did slay over 7,000 enemies himself as he secured leagues of friendship and acquired large swaths of land, men, and women to further make Rome the dominant feature in Middle Italy. It seems the more who rebelled, the more powerful Rome became. Romulus would show his restraint as king when after his grandfather Numitor now belonged past and the kingdom fell to Romulus, he did not directly take it over, but instead installed a magistrate and let the people manage their own affairs. This Plutarch describes would help form the basis for the coming republic where the men of Rome would begin to seek a free state hostile to monarchy, monarchy where the people would both be subjects and rulers of their own accord. Pretty forward thinking and humble for a man with absolute power. Now, with the Senate not acquiring its power now belong and Romulus's generosity being extended beyond his grandfather's old kingdom, to include releasing hostages to the recently vanquished Veientes, the Senate Plutarch was hinting was growing disillusioned with Romulus, and when Romulus shortly after these decisions went missing, rumors began to swirl over the fate of Romulus and what part the Senate may have played. Some thought senators most aggrieved with Romulus killed him and chopped him to pieces in the Temple Vulcan. Others, that Romulus fled the city to a place called the Goat's Marsh, within the Campus Martius, where a dark and ugly storm ascended upon the city, scattering the populace, and as sunshine broke through the dark clouds the next day, Romulus was gone, and the senators seized the opportunity to decry that Romulus had been taken to the gods after setting Rome up for future greatness and should be worshipped as a god. Plutarch writes, The multitude hearing this went away believing and rejoicing in hopes of good things from him. But there were some who canvassing the matter in a hostile temper accused the patricians as men that persuade the people to believe ridiculous tales when they themselves were the murderers of the king. So it's hard to know which version of events most closely resembled the truth surrounding his death. But what we do know is Romulus, through sheer force and conciliatory policies, regardless how and why he vanished, left Rome the political, economic, and military foundation to forge the largest empire the ancient world had ever seen. Romulus was now a god, and all the Romans to fall would endure to fill the gigantic shoes he left behind. I hope you enjoyed the episode, and we look forward to seeing you next time with the life of Solomon. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com, or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you are using. See you next time.